only way to fix those issues is to go to the Word of God. And that is going to be the theme of what we talk about today. Remember John 16, if there are troubles, if there are hardships, if something's not going right, that is the norm for us as humanity living in this world. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have hardship. But he said what? Take heart. I've overcome the world. Amen. We need to remember that. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but what stands forever? Say it, church. The word of God stands forever. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If he is the truth and the word stands forever, where do we need to go to get the fix that we need? We need to go to the word of God. Have you ever looked at, I don't know if anybody's been in the banking world, anybody online, if you're in the, in the banking industry, they teach you how to recognize counterfeit money. If somebody hands you a $20 bill, and then hands you a piece of Monopoly money, that's pretty easy to figure out. But that's not what we're talking about. Sometimes the world will try and hand you Monopoly money and tell you it's real. Go ahead and use it. Go buy something with it. But you know, without even feeling it, looking at it, anything, you know something's wrong. It's blatant. It's clear. It's obvious. Okay? But that's not what we're talking about. But how do you recognize dollars, bills, currency, that is counterfeit. It looks the same. It maybe even feel the same. It's got all this, the markings that you would believe represents the real deal. But do you know how they train bankers to identify counterfeit money? They give them the real thing. And say, I want you to spend time with actual currency. I want you to look at it. I want you to study it. I want you to feel it time and time and time and time again. They don't automatically take all kinds of examples of counterfeit money and place them before you and say, okay, study all these as well. They don't do that. Because if you spend enough time with the real deal and the moment something fake touches your hands or you notice it, what are you going to realize? Something's wrong here. You see what we're saying? So what's the spiritual concept of being a banker in the Word of God? Spend time in the truth. Spend time with the Word. Feel it. Study it. Be in it all the time. So that when something counterfeit is presented to you, although it may sound similar or look similar, you know it's in the real deal. You following me? That's the heart of what we're talking about this morning. Peter knew his time was short. So he was doing all he could to instill in the church the reality of the truth of God's word so that they would be able to recognize on their own. Remember the time frame that we're in. Peter, James, John, all the other apostles are nearing the end of their ministry. Their lives are coming to an end. So it is up to everybody receiving the truth of God's word to know it, to recognize it, to do something with it, because the moment the original 12 and so on are done and gone, that's the opportunity for the enemy to creep in. So we need to be able to recognize what's not true, what's fake. Let's read together the first three verses and then we're going to move on from there. Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 12, reading through verse 15. Peter continues, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, 
though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Do you hear a little sense of urgency in Peter's voice? Do you hear that? He knows his time is short. He knows because Jesus promised him, you don't have much time left. So he's doing everything. Even his words say, I'm doing everything possible to instill in you and remind you and remind you and remind you and remind you of the truth of God's word. Because I'm not going to be around forever. And so you need to pick up that mantle and carry on. Basically saying, do we have that same sense of urgency in our life 2,000 years later to know the truth of God's word, to be in it constantly, and then do what God calls us to do? Be a disciple that makes disciples. So be a Peter that is passing on the truth of God's word to all people in your sphere of influence because your time is short. And at some point, somebody's going to need to carry on that truth. But you, I, need to know the truth and what that truth is in God's word to pass it on appropriately. But remember, it's knowledge not just about God. Because knowledge about God without practice is sedentary and meaningless. Remember we used the word last week, lazy and useless? That's knowledge about God. When you don't do anything with it, you're just puffing up your own brain with a bunch of information you don't intend to use. But a life in Christ without growth is no life at all as well. So what are we talking about? What are we doing with the information we have? It's important. So from there, let's read on. 2 Peter 1, let's read verses 16 through 19 together. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So at the center of what Peter is now describing, we have three accounts of Jesus's transfiguration moment. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all reference that glorious transfiguration on the mountain. Jesus took with him three disciples, James, John, and Mr. Peter. And he went through this process of glorification on that mountain, and all three of those gentlemen were eyewitnesses to that account. It's Peter's own words. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But what is he talking about? Why is that event, why is that moment important to what we're talking about? Because it confirms everything we need to know and everything we are to do so let's take a look at that because when you know that you know you ever had those moments oh, yeah. i know that i know that i know this is absolute truth 
I know what I know, and I know that I know, that what I know is what I know, and it's truth, and nobody can tell me otherwise. When you're at that point, what is that based on? What is that knowledge, beyond a shadow of a doubt, absolute truth based on? It's based on what you've seen, and it's based on what you've experienced. It's based on your eyewitness account, because nobody can take that away from you. I know that I know, and this is what Peter's getting across right now. He knows. Why? Because he saw it with his own eyes. Because up till now, in our other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were not on the mountaintop. But yet, we have three accounts that tell the exact same story by three men who were not there. So how do we know that they know that they know? Because they heard that account from the men who were there. And wrote down that Holy Spirit-inspired word and story that was accurate in all three gospel accounts. So not only do we have three records, we now have the man who was there voicing his own words as to what I saw and does it not match the other three accounts? What an amazing thing. So we now have four spoken accounts of God's glory on that mountain. So Peter is explaining that the truth of what he is presenting is based on his eyewitness account of Christ's transfiguration and glory. That account recorded in three Gospels. They believed and recorded what the eyewitnesses saw and explained. Here's what it comes down to. How important are words? How important are the words that we speak about what we know? So we need to be absolutely clear about what we know as we tell of the truth of God's word and faith in Jesus Christ. Words are important. Does that make sense? You following me so far? So here's a question. What's the importance then of a courtroom stenographer? You guys know what a courtroom stenographer is? Hey, the one who types on the very small computer keyboard. Hey, I, she can touch like four or five buttons at once, and it basically provides a word-for-word -word exact transcript of everything that is said in that courtroom. You ever thought about that individual? Why are they so important? Why is that necessary to do? Why can't we just get a digital recorder and, and hit record? Because can technology pause and say, sorry, there was a little mumbling. I didn't quite catch what was said. Can you repeat those words? Because I couldn't understand. Technology's not going to do that. That's why we have not replaced court stenographers with technology. Because we need that human instinct to listen, to take information in, and get it down exactly word for word. Because the importance of that transcript may determine an individual's life. Following me? Understand the importance of words? In fact, uh, I went on to a, a legal website just to really get the understanding because th th these are individuals that kind of sit off in the corner, they type on their machine, and you really don't focus on them. If you've ever been on a jury, you're, you're trying to listen yourself. You're trying to catch and take all this information in. But here they are. And so on, on a legal website, it said the requirement of exact record of what was said. The producing, now listen, and connect this spiritually to what we're talking about. The producing of complete, accurate, and secure legal transcript. 
It's the official record that allows for users to efficiently search for important information contained in the transcript. So as followers of Jesus, are we going to remember everything that we've been told? No. But what do we have at our disposal? The complete, exact transcript of everything that is said and done that we need for our life. And there's no question of its authenticity. And there's no question as to the author of it. How important are these words? So here's what Peter does. He takes the opportunity to explain in his own words what he saw, what he experienced on that mountaintop. But did you catch how he defined that moment? He said, we, 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 we. Six times in his description of that event, he used the word we. Why? Because he was not alone. How important are witnesses in a trial? Is one individual's eyewitness account going to determine the life or penalty or punishment or freedom of an individual? Usually not. A lawyer will typically pull in as many witnesses as they can, right? Because the testimony of many is going to provide more truth. So what do we see Peter saying? It wasn't just me. It was James. It was John. And their accounts and their records are exactly the same. Especially when it comes to what? The very word of God they all audibly heard come from heaven. And that's what I love about that story. Yes, Christ's glory. Yes, I can't wait to see what that actually looks like. The beauty, the majesty of it, that light emanating from him. But also that auditory voice of God that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But he doesn't stop there. God the Father does not stop there. What does he say? He says, this is my beloved son that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Peter, and James, and John all record that God the Father said, listen to him. In that account of the transfiguration, God the Father spoke from heaven saying, this is my son, listen to him. Is there important importance in the words that are going to come from the mouth of Jesus? We better pay attention. Because it is going to be those words in the remainder of his ministry that is going to determine life and freedom for all who hear and are willing to listen to those words. Words are important. The very words of God Almighty declaring the words of his son as truth. Follow me now. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Who is the word? Say it. Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was, the, was with God, and Jesus was God. John 14, 6. The word of Jesus would then declare, I am the way, the truth. Say it again. I am the way, the So the word that was in the beginning is now saying, I am truth. My word is truth. 
Let's follow on. Jesus continues to say in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus is the word. The word is truth. And we can trust in that, that that word, that truth, sacrificed his life so that we could be free. Are his words important? Do we need to pay attention? Do we need to take those words in and hide those words in our heart that we may not and would not and will not sin against him? Absolutely. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But Psalm 119, verses 160, says, The sum of your word is truth. The sum of your word is truth. If we stop there for a moment, the sum of your word, what does that mean? little mathematical equation that you take 66 books of words and put them together and add them up the full scope of this word is what church truth the full scope is truth the sum of your word is truth and it goes on to say and every one of your righteous rules endures forever forever and ever This is why Paul would say again, and we mentioned it last week, and I'm sure I've mentioned it many other times, and I will, and I won't apologize for it. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through what? Word of God. How important are words? So this singular event of the transfiguration of Jesus on that mountain, and what Peter is proclaiming, how important is that? How important is that event? To know the truth, So that we combat false gospels and teachers because Jesus is coming again in glory. But not without what? Not without trial. Not without suffering. Not without persecution. Because when you speak the truth that nobody else wants to hear and receive, how do people respond to that? With anger. With hostility. With hate. So with prior to glory comes suffering. Isn't that what Jesus experienced? Absolutely. Verse 19. Let's focus there for just a minute. Verse 19 says again, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The word is truth. Pay attention. Do me a favor. Turn to the Gospel of John. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. We're going to take just a quick moment and continue to pursue this in Jesus' own words. Peter's words are important. Let's pay attention. But as we've been saying thus far, the Word of God is important. The words of Jesus are important. Jesus' words are truth, so let's read Jesus' words. John 5, verses 31 through 47. I'm just going to read this passage. I want you to read along with me, if it's before you or it'll be up on the screen. I want you to, I'm going to read a little slow, because let's pay attention to the words that Jesus is using. Verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. 
There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John, speaking of John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when, the, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? It's kind of a harsh, harsh word Jesus is speaking. But what is he saying? God the Father, whom you believe in, has borne witness about me. He did it at my baptism. He did it on the mountain with eyewitnesses all around. People at the baptism and people on the mountain heard the voice of God that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And yet you don't receive from the Lord. You don't see God. You don't hear God because you've not accepted his words. Therefore, God does not abide in your heart. So it's not a surprise that you're not trusting in me. Whom the father sent so you could see for yourself and hear the words for yourself. The authority that he has given me of the truth of who he is and what I'm offering. You hear what Jesus is saying? But God even sent John the Baptist. And you all reveled in his words. But what did his words speak of? Me. He was a lamp for a little while, shining the light so that you all would be aware of who Jesus is, who I am, and yet you don't receive me. You received him for a little while, but as soon as he left the stage, and here I am, you don't receive my words. But I'm not, that's not the only one. you got God the Father who bore witness. You have John the Baptist who bore witness. You also have Moses who bore witness. And yet you still don't receive my words. And everything that Moses wrote is about me. So basically Jesus is saying, open your ears. <laughs> you study scripture you go into the Word because you think in here you're going to find eternal life. So let's not get too confused in all this. Do we find eternal life in these words? Yes. 
but it's not in these words that we receive eternal life. It is in Jesus Christ himself. The study of God's word is not salvation. Don't become a Pharisee that only studies the word of God simply for the study of God's word and miss the point. We study the God's, God's word to have Jesus revealed, and it's in Jesus we find salvation. I know that's a little confusing. <laughs> We're putting so much emphasis on words, but we need to study the words in order to find life. And life is in Jesus, not just a bunch of words. <laughs> Confused yet? I am. But you guys fear what I'm saying? We need an experience with Jesus. As Peter had his experience on that mountaintop with Jesus, and he heard the words of the Heavenly Father declared, this is my son, listen to him. So we still need to pay attention to the words, but our salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. Make sense? Psalm 119, 105. As Jesus spoke about John the Baptist being a, a lamp that, that shone for a little while, bore witness about Christ for a little while, that light in John the Baptist even said, here is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, laid the foundation for Jesus and his ministry. But what does Scripture say? Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I am severely afflicted. Sorry, down in verse 107. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Does this give a little refreshment to Psalm 23? We know Psalm 23. We use it all the time. It brings us encouragement. It gives us hope. But don't forget the words of Psalm 23, especially in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where are we walking? Here and now. That's what this world is. It is dark. Anybody remember the answer to what this world promises you? Say it again. The only thing this world can promise you is death. So let's read Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But what? You are with me. Your words give me hope. Your words give me life. Your words give me direction. Your words give me correction. <laughs> so we don't veer off into the darkness. We need the words of Christ in our life. The word of God will remain until all hear. The word of God stands forever. Flower fades, right? But the word of God stands forever. But Peter mentioned something really quick that I want to I refer to. In verse 19, he talked about the morning star. So let's talk about what the morning star is. Some people refer to that as possibly what we would know today as Venus. Not a star necessarily, but a planet. You guys know 
if you, I don't know if you study stars or not saying do that. We don't need to study astrology, but astronomy, that Venus is one of the brightest planets in the sky, especially right before a new day, you'll still be able to see Venus shining bright. So some equate Venus to this bright star. So that's what they say this bright morning star is because it shines bright right before a new day. But let's talk about who is our bright morning star because he said it about himself. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Jesus said, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So what do we look forward to when Jesus comes again? Because as Venus shines the brightest right before a new day, Christ is going to come back and it's going to be a brand new day. That should give us hope. That should give us encouragement. That even though we have to live temporarily in this death, in this darkness, there's hope because of the light that shines. Let's look at the last two verses for this morning. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this admonition to seek God's word in it lies truth and points of light that lead to the ultimate light of the word, world. Excuse me. So when we look at the whole of Scripture, there's little pockets of light. If Christ himself said that Moses in the first five books, wrote about him, then I would encourage us all to peruse Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and search for the light of Jesus in those scriptures. If we go to the prophets, if we go to the books of the law, if we go to the, the Psalms and the Proverbs, we should still see little pockets of light pointing to Jesus until the morning light arrived on the scene the first time. But something came to mind. And I don't know why, but it fits. So I'm going to run with it. I'm not advocating that this is a spiritual enlightening show that everybody needs to watch because it points to Jesus. It does not. Parents... Talk to your kids, research the show if you're going to watch, but it, please understand, I'm not advocating this show as it points to Jesus Christ. It's just a show, but it's called Stranger Things. Anybody, have you guys seen this show? You've watched ask, you know, maybe the series or anything about it? Okay. I've watched the series thus far a couple times, and there's something that came no pun intended, to light as I was watching this and as I was studying that kind of reminded me of what we're talking about. In the very first season, one of the main characters, his name is Will, he gets caught in what's called the Upside Down. Now the Upside Down is a parallel universe to the life as, as they knew it. That Upside Down is dark. That Upside Down is dangerous 
The upside down is full of death. See where I'm going with this? But Will finds a way to communicate to those that were living in the real world. He communicated through light. And there was only one person that finally came to the realization of of this fact that Will was using light to communicate, and that was his mom. Joyce realized, because the lights would start to flicker, and she started to gain some understanding and maybe a little bit of hope that her son was still alive. So what she started to do was to connect the lights. And she came to believe through the light that her son was alive. But she needed proof. Because everybody else was calling her crazy. Saying, your your son's dead. He's gone. She said, no, I will never stop believing. I will never give up that my son is alive. So here's what she does. She pulls out some Christmas lights and she strings them up on the wall. And under each light, she uh, paints the alphabet on the wall. And she's asking her son, because she believes this is Will communicating. She says, Will, communicate, let me know. And so what Will starts to do is highlight or turn on the light that corresponds to a letter. So basically getting to the point where he shines light on these letters, connecting these letters together to form words that gives mom an understanding that he's alive and provides her instruction as to what to do. So here's what we need to understand. As we read this, please don't stop with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We should go to Genesis 1-1 and see the light flicker. We should be in Ezekiel and see the light flicker. We may not understand fully, but keep reading. If we're in Psalms, we should see the light flicker. As we move closer and closer to the Gospels, that light should get bright and bright and bright and bright. If we move on to these epistles, and Peter and and John and James, as they're writing, we should see the light flicker. As we read Revelation, we should see the light flicker and get excited because we start to put all these things together, and what do we see? We see Jesus Christ. We see the light of the world. Sending us a message that there is hope. That one, he is alive. He's not dead. And he's coming again. But he's letting you know, I'm here. Take the full scope of these little pockets of light and put them together. And what do you get? You get Jesus Christ. Through the full scope of the word of God. I'll say it again. Are words important? Absolutely. When we take the whole of God's word and connect all the prophetic lights together, they will speak to the reality of who Jesus is. And in that way, show us the way to salvation. The entire scope of God's word, all 66 books, written by 40 different people over the scope of anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 years on three different continents. And yet they all together, they tell the same story. That story of redemption. That story of salvation. That story of who Christ is. Even John Calvin would remark that the prophets did not blab their inventions. 
I love that phrase. So all these guys writing these words, they didn't just blab their inventions. They didn't just make up some words and hope it stuck to the wall. They were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Almost as if they took the pen as a sail and allowed the Holy Spirit to blow into their sail and move them forward. That's what Peter's talking about here when he talks of prophecy of Scripture. But what we need to be careful about is anybody giving you a word from God that is not contained in the word of God. We need to be careful about that. This is what he's saying. God has spoken. I'm not saying God can't give a word to somebody. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't speak to somebody's heart. But we need to be careful that what we believe we hear from God, if we take it to the word of God, and that doesn't match up, then we need to spend some time in prayer. Ask God for further revelation. Or speak again. Please confirm. But I guarantee you that whatever he confirms, whatever he says, you'll find it in here. You'll find it in here. So again, all this is being set up for why? Because there's going to be a lot of words that are spoken. There's going to be a lot of words out there that are given. And when it's not rooted in the word of God, the truth of the word of God, red flags should go up. But again, we need to know the word of God in order to know what's not the word of God. So let me ask you a couple questions as we bring this to a close. First off, the prophet Jeremiah spoke to this. Oh, sorry, let me, let me speak first to Ezekiel. Ezekiel spoke to this condemning false prophets, condemning these false teachers. He would say in chapter 13, verse 3 of his book, thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophet, prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Because there's a lot of people out there that want to be wise. They want to be smart. They want to be considered uh, a leader. And so they'll spout words that sound prophetic, that sound real, that sound true, that are encouraging. But they have not heard from God. And Ezekiel says, woe to them. Jeremiah in chapter 23, verses 16 and 17 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Jeremiah, hearing from God, speaking to the people for God, says, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. There's a red flag. Those who don't want anything to do with the word of God, and a prophet will still say, oh, that's okay. You'll, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Is that the reality of the gospel? If we're going to speak to mercy and grace, then we better be able to explain with truth and love that we are saved from something. God gives us mercy from his wrath and his justice, which is hell and eternal torment if we don't accept the truth of who Jesus is. If you never hear about that, that should be a red flag. Well, don't worry about it. Hell isn't real. God won't send people to hell. Now, that's a true word. 
Because God didn't create hell for people. He desires that everybody is saved. Hell was created for the devil and his minions. God doesn't send anybody to hell. People walk into hell on their own because they reject the truth of God's word. But there's a lot of people out there that don't want to say those words because it doesn't sound nice. It's not a very encouraging word to, you're just trying to scare people to Jesus. Okay. If you don't have a healthy fear of who God is, that the God who sent his son to die for our sins is the same God that created eternal torment for those that ultimately reject him, if you can't piece those together, then get back into the word of God. Because that is the same God. The same God is the God of love, but is also a God of justice. So remember, what can the world offer you apart from Christ? Someone by the name of Harry Ironside said this, the ever unsatisfied longing of a hungry soul results in faintness of spirit and sickness of heart. Such is the hopeless hope of the Christless. How blessed the contrast in the case of the Christian. It's only through Christ we receive hope. So again, as is the theme of our study in the second Peter, be vigilant. We need to be aware. Remember the word and its purpose for your life. Allow it to light your path and keep at bay those who would try and sell you a different false gospel. And when you're unsure of what is being presented, somebody hands you a $100 bill. You're like, ah, it doesn't look right. It doesn't feel right. Well, one, maybe you've never really seen a $100 bill. So study it. Look at it. <laughs> Hold in your hands. Be blessed if it is the real deal. Because it's value. But if it's not real, then, and you're unsure if it's real, then go to the Word of God. Is there anything wrong with questioning the words of people who present you the word of God? I'm going to ask you that again. Is there anything wrong with questioning the words of those who are presenting you the word of God? No. You know why? It's biblical to do so. Read Acts 17. It's a group of people called the Bereans. They were blessed and encouraged because when they heard the gospel, they immediately went to search the scriptures to see if what they heard was true. You don't have to worry about questioning what you're being presented. Go to the word of God and see for yourself if what was said is true. And if it's, if you're having a hard time, then you go to that individual and you say, let's look at this together. I've got some questions about some of the things that you said. Can we talk about it? Can we look at scripture together? So rather than write off an individual altogether, come together, get into the word of God together and see if what was being presented is the truth. Is God's word important to you? Answer that in your own heart. Is God's word important to you? You got to answer that question. Just do it inside. If it's really important to you, then I want you to evaluate your week. God's word is truth. 
and it holds value to you, and it's important to you. And I want you to evaluate your week. How many hours are in your week? I'll answer, 168. You have 168 hours. How much of that time are you spending in the Word of God if it is so important and valuable to you? I'm not trying to bring conviction. The Holy Spirit will do that. I'm just presenting a question. If you feel convicted, evaluate your week. Are you in the Word of God that you say is so important to you? Are you studying it? Are you hanging on to it? Are you feeling it? Are you reading it? Are you looking at it? Are you spending multiple amounts of time with it? So the moment that something that is not real is presented to you, do you know the difference? That's the challenge. Something I don't think will ever happen, but I'm just going to present a question. If we lost every physical and electronic representation of the Word of God in our life, let's just say all Bibles disappear, both physically and electronically. Do you have what you need stored up in your heart to counteract any false gospel that's presented to you? Don't, hey, don't get mad at the messenger. It's just a question. But it's just biblical. Your word I have stored in my heart. Not I have downloaded your word as an app to my phone so that I might not sin against you. That's good to have. It's great because if you don't want to carry all 66 physical books in your pocket, then put it on your phone. But the question remains, if you lose your phone, if you don't have a Bible, can you counteract the false teaching that is brought to you? Because his word is here. It's a challenge for me. That's why I wrote it down on my notes. Because I challenge myself with that information. Because I'm finding myself more and more challenged every day as I continue to interact with society. And I think you will too, with this kind of knowledge in your head, what you're thinking about, how you will present the gospel to somebody with what you have inside of you. And if you personally can evaluate and say, well, it's not enough. Then what do you need to do? What do you need to do? We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but I won't leave it at that because that's not what I do. I'm going to leave you with some encouragement. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Let this be a blessing to you as we continue to pursue this world, as we continue to live in this upside-down world, in darkness and death surrounding us, with the light and the truth and the hope and the encouragement of who Christ is to us. Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That's a good one to memorize. Amen?